with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Good afternoon, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, Reclaiming That Which Has Always Been in You. I am Dr. James Houck, and uh, my great pleasure to be with you here this afternoon on a beautiful, uh, eh, let's see, where are we at? Uh, August 19th. So time is just flying by. Unbelievable, unbelievable. That is for sure. So uh, if you'd like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit the website. It's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. All one word there. And uh, if you would like to call in and be part of the show today, I invite you to call me at 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And just a reminder that just in case you cannot spend the whole hour with me, that's okay, because these broadcasts focus, uh, I should say, these broadcasts are also podcasted. And so you can always go back and look under the website and uh, find uh, the show that you had missed, and uh, you'll be able to download it and listen to it at your leisure. Well... Um, For those of you who have been with me for some time now, as well as those who are just perhaps joining for the first time today, I always just like to share that uh, these broadcasts focus on the integration of spirituality and mental health within the context of our relationships with ourselves, with others, our interpersonal relationships, and with God or the divine. And like I said before, it is indeed my great pleasure to be with you here today. And, you know, I often uh, share with my clients in, in my own uh, clinical practice that uh, my, my own personal philosophy of how and why I work with people the way that I do. And um, it always gets them curious. And I just say, well, this it basically comes from two deep-seated beliefs in myself. Uh, one, the first belief is that I believe that people have the answers within themselves meaning that they know the kind of life that they want to live, you know, what brings them happiness and joy and peace and contentment, and they know what doesn't. And two, I believe that from the moment we are born, and then some, we have everything we need for in this life in terms of our talents, our skills, our gifts, our graces, our personalities, our strengths, etc. And yet, There are times in our life when we go through horrific experiences, such as being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we suffer some traumatic uh, pain, or we struggle with, let's say, the same mistakes over and over and over again, or bad habits, etc., that we've never really properly dealt with or healed from, or we struggle with, let's say, issues... um, and trying to make sense of those things that have just been handed down through us uh, through our family line. 
But nevertheless, these issues and the pain that they often entail keeps us from living the life we want to live, okay? And as well as it keeps the very best of ourselves from coming out, okay? And as a result, we often live our lives from a place of woundedness and pain instead of from a place of healing and wholeness and love. And, you know, it is quite ironic that uh, we often receive these deep emotional, psychological, physical, and even spiritual wounds as a result of being in relationships with one another. I mean, we are relational beings. We are social creatures. And as a result, that's often where our (laughs) wounds come from. And whether or not the, the wounding was intentional or accidental, you know, it's it's what we do afterwards, once we've been wounded, emotionally wounded or physically wounded, or perhaps that we have wounded another person, it is what we do afterwards that will either reinforce those emotional wounds to say, or can we find a way to be healed, to work through all of that pain and be free from those burdens? You know, it's interesting, as I was preparing for this broadcast today, I, I always go back through and just, you know, read books here and there, and came across um, a word in the Korean language uh, that's called Han, H-A-N, which basically means the deep wounds of victims. It's the deep wounds of victims. And it, this came from the book uh, From Hurt to Healing. And the author, uh, Andrew Sung Park, he describes Han this way. He says, imagine a woman is in a room where there is no door or window. She panics and knocks at the four walls frantically. And after a couple of days, realizing that there is no use in her doing this any longer, she gives up all hope. And then she despairs. And surrounded by the four walls, her life loses meaning, and her spirit dies within her. This slow death is what we call Han. Sadness, resignation, hopelessness, and despair are all parts of what Han means. And when a person's deep wounds are not healed, the wounds become vortexes of troubled waters intertwined with their own instinct of survival and fear. And even within generational trauma and intergenerational trauma, I should say, and the agony that comes with it that is relentless and severe, as in the cases of, let's say, patriarchal tyranny, race discrimination, economic exploitation, and ethnic cleansing, to name a few, Park describes Han fully as this rupture of the soul, where an internalized collective memory of victims occurs over and over and over again. A pain that is so intense that it's often described as a rupture of the soul. You know, I often sit with others who believe they're living in their own boxed-in world. You know, they're just looking at four walls, the four walls of Han. Sadness, resignation, hopelessness, and even despair. 
And it's more than just feeling stagnant or stuck in your life. Uh, you know, people also wrestle with a sense of hopelessness or a feeling that life is meaningless. But just for a moment, let's take this word Han and the analogy of the woman in the room with no door and no window. Let's take it a little one step further. As you see, many people often feel as though they live in a world of Han within themselves. They struggle to heal from the past and in their own way and time, find it very difficult to work through painful memories. Now, remember what I said about believing that when we come into this world, we have everything we need in this life in terms of our talents, skills, gifts, graces, personalities, and strengths, right? Well, how often do we receive these deepest emotional, psychological, spiritual wounds from being in relationships, as I said? Okay, so indeed, herein lies the emotional, psychological, and physical and spiritual wounds. Okay, think about it this way. We often think that if we say something harmful or do something harmful, that it's never going to come back on us. And this is true, whether it's an individual attitude or behavior or collectively, as in society. But these words, thoughts, and deeds do come back to us eventually. Every negative thought, every negative thing we say, Every negative thing we do comes back to us, often reinforcing these wounded parts of ourselves. And you know, it's, it's interesting just how many different ways we have and sayings that we have to understand this concept of everything we say and everything that we do comes back to us and reinforces the wounded parts of ourselves. I mean, we say things like, well, you know, what goes around comes around. Or we would say, you know, what you sow, you reap. And, you know, we even have an interesting understanding of karma. It's just another way to look at this effect. Uh, the problem is, for some reason, we think that we are exempt from this boomerang effect of what goes out from us is not going to come back to us. Now, as we want to grow in our relationships and perhaps even begin a process of a higher dimensional relationship with God, we will be reminded of all the negative, the, the psychological, emotional, and spiritual patterns within our relationships that keep us stuck in the past. I mean, I have, I have many people who are either, you know, stuck in the past or just thoroughly ensconced in their fears which pull them into the future. And that's a problem because it doesn't allow us to be fully in the present. And unfortunately, there are times when our unhealed parts of ourselves and negativity causes us to spend too much time ruminating over the minor frustrations we experience. You know, when we're stuck in traffic, or when we don't like to pay bills, or disagreeing with colleagues, or friends, or even loved ones. And when this occurs, we often miss the many opportunities to be able to see and hear and taste and smell and touch the goodness of God 
as well as the way God often works through the most unlikely people at the most unlikely times. And this is the phenomenon that I run into time and time again, counseling clients who want to heal from their past and improve their relationships. That whatever a person is struggling with from other relationships, it's kind of ironic that more than likely they're struggling with the same issues in themselves. Again, what negative energy is being sent out echoes back sooner or later. And here are a couple of examples. Let's say a person who is filled with bitterness from a previous hurt or betrayal, if left unhealed, that person will end up viewing everyone and everything and perhaps even feeling everything from this lens of bitterness. Or let's say a, a person who has experienced tremendous hurt from a broken trust in relationships unless this is healed and transformed, will view everything and everyone with sus uh, suspicion. And this is very difficult for people to understand the phenomena of emotional and psychological self-inflicted wounds. What goes out has to first come from within. Connecting the dots? Good. But, you know, some people might even say, you know, and perhaps you've heard this in families or other relationships you've been in, you know, I'm, I'm never going to forgive that person because they really hurt me. Well, I wonder if perhaps that person is really saying, I'll never be able to forgive myself for whatever I did. Or... You know, I could never trust any another person because, you know, that last person really did this to me and such. And Well, perhaps that usually means I have difficulty trusting myself. Or a classic example, I can't stand it when a person says or does this. Again, just might mean I can't stand myself whenever I say or do this. And then the last, last example here, I, I just can't love that person because it just might mean that they are also struggling with loving themselves. I mean, how we are with others, it's often how we are with ourselves and vice versa. How we see others is often how we see ourselves. And unresolved, unhealed wounds certainly distort how we view and interact with the world. Well, how many out there in Internet Radio Land have ever seen the movie Frozen, right? It's a classic, okay, or, you know, a contemporary classic, I should say. Then uh, if you have seen the movie, then perhaps you are aware that the movie is a variation of Hans Christian Andersen's children's story, The Snow Princess. And it's kind of ironic. He wrote this, uh, you know, uh, story back in 1845. And uh, among other classics that he had written. But again, the movie Frozen was based on the Snow Princess, albeit Hollywood and, you know, other variations that get in there. Okay. But in Anderson's story, you know, there's this evil troll, which is the devil. And he, he takes a very large magic mirror, you know, kind of like the funhouse mirrors at carnivals. 
and he uses these mirror uh, this mirror to distort the appearance of everything it reflects in fact the mirror was not designed to reflect the wholesome and beautiful aspects of people and things but instead this mirror only magnified their ugly and wicked characteristics so throughout this story, this troll that is the devil becomes amused in distorting the images of everyone and everything, even to the degree that even the most beautiful lands looked like boiled spinach to people who were looking into this mirror. Well, one day the troll decides, with the help of his minions, now these are not the cute little yellow minions that irritate Gru, but no less evil. These minions carry the mirror into heaven so that the troll might make fools of the angels and God. However, the mirror slips from their grasp and it falls back to earth and it shatters into billions of tiny, tiny pieces. And these tiny shards of mirror are then blown by the wind all over the earth, which get into people's eyes and get into their hearts. And as a result, people's hearts become frozen like ice, and their eyes now can only see the ugliness and evil in each other and the world in which they live. You know, ironically, past wounds are just like the shards of distorted perceptions of who we truly are as souls, as well as what freezes our hearts from seeing the beauty and goodness in ourselves and others. I mean, for people who struggle with intergenerational wounds or who have suffered crimes against humanity, society often further inflicts more damage because it holds up its own mirrors of misleading standards, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. But Nevertheless, these shards of illusion are intentionally designed to add generational distortions to the eyes and hearts of the already weak and wounded. And over time, then, our, you know, our minds tell us that what we perceive, albeit limited and hazy, well, it has to be true. And in severe cases, trauma can be passed down genetically. It attaches itself to our DNA and often covertly disguises itself as harmful physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual symptoms. Now, similarly, as intergenerational trauma is passed down through society and families, that is, what we carry in our genes and how we are and how we were raised and through various social systems also <clears throat> that we experience, they also galvanize harmful stereotypes and prejudices and injustices and to certain degrees, emotional dependence and biases, etc. And therefore, intergenerational trauma is not just limited to how it affects our families, but it also affects all relationships, from the most intimate relationships to the mere acquaintances in our lives. And this realization is a significant aspect of healing our relationships. 
you know, it, it's when we take time and we reflect and, you know, this, this realization, you know, it occurs when we can understand what has so wounded another person, what has so wounded ourselves as to allow us to continually act out of our woundedness. But yet at the same time, we expect different results. And, and I have to say from personal experience that by understanding the background of those who had hurt me, that it has allowed me to take the necessary steps closer to forgiving and releasing the burdens of carrying around my wounds any longer. Because I realized that if a person hadn't gone through what they had gone through in their life, or if they hadn't gone through a dam the damage and the emotional wounding or even the physical wounding or psychological wounding and to a certain degree, would they have acted out in that way? Or are they coming from a place of woundedness in their lives? You know, it's the same is certainly true when we understand this and when we want to forgive another. And forgiveness, indeed, is a process. It's a process we begin by saying to that person who has hurt us that we no longer want them to carry the weight of their wounds. Okay, did you hear what I said? You know, it's a process we begin by saying to the person that hurt us, that hurt me, that I no longer want you to carry the weight of your wounds. By understanding where they're coming from and their woundedness in their lives, I realize that I want them to be healed from those wounds. And likewise, you know, we want them to also be unburdened by any weight of bitterness or unforgiveness and shame and humiliation or, or whatever pain they have suffered from in the past that continues to influence how they think or say and act in very, very harmful ways. In fact, forgiveness certainly promotes well-being. You know, it's, it's studies have been shown long time, you know, definitely the, the 90s were the decade of the brain, but this is where well-being really started to get a foothold, not just in the world of psychology, but also in uh, the medical community as well. And so, you know, forgiveness was seen to promote a well-being. It creates a peace and so forth, especially for cardiovascular health. And it certainly has been shown to increase survival rates. You know, people live longer because they're happier, they're healthier, they have more peace. And specifically, when people have this what's called uh, trait forgiveness, that is a constant attitude to forgive. And when this is associated with a diminished recourse to medications and alcohol, in other words, when we forgive, and we have that peace, less likely people are going to use medications and alcohol or some other maladaptive way to cope because we've gone to the heart or the root of the matter. And, and many times I see this with people that I counsel. Many times I have taught this and you know, the students that I have trained that what is the real issue here that we are talking about? 
It's not that a person can't control their anger, which is important and needs to be addressed, yes, but what's the pain in their life? Where is the pain in their life? What do they still need to let go? What do they need to be forgiven for? What do they need to forgive others for? And so forth. We start asking those kinds of questions, then we're getting somewhere. Yeah, we're getting somewhere. And all the other surface issues, like, say, the anger or a person turning to alcohol, can be fully addressed then. And, you know, uh, empathy, having that kind of empathy towards, uh, you know, let's say an offender, really eliminates this retaliatory behavior. And the reason why is because we understand where that offense came from. The circumstances that perhaps led to such behavior and the wounds that that he or she carries up to that point, we would probably act in the same manner. In fact, when we're able to take a step back and think about what experiences must have happened to an offender to be able to lash out in aggression or cut another person with their words or take advantage of innocent people. Indeed, what happened to victims is horrific and appalling and must be accounted for. But what happens to the offender is, in some ways, much, much worse. Their their sense of morals and ethics and empathy have been destroyed by what has been done to them in the past. So how do we help restore them as well? But, you know, um, also, if the offender had an opportunity to be forgiven and truly heal from their past, would they likely commit the offense again? Probably not. And this is what a deeper level of forgiveness offers. It's an opportunity to be healed and to live a better life. And now, let's, let's be real here. We all act and speak from degrees of ignorance. In other words, if we truly see the psychological, emotional, physical, and spiritual damage done internally and externally, would we be willing to hurt another? Would we be willing to hurt ourselves? But you know, the truth is that we're not alone in this life. We come from a long line of people or ancestors who are cheering us on, people who have lived their lives, people who have struggled. And they may have left examples for us in one way or another. And we're going to have many, many more ancestors who will come after us. And again, think about the people who didn't wait till they had all their lives healed and sorted out, but rather reached out and healed others regardless, which, interesting, goes hand in hand. You know, we often say, well, when it comes a day, I will do that. Or when I retire, I'll be able to do this and such. But can we offer forgiveness? Can we offer healing before we ourselves are healed? Think about that. Just think about that. And, you know, someday... Someday, future generations will be reminded of us. And they're going to look back and, you know, how we lived our lives and struggle to remain faithful, you know, to that which we've been called to in our lives. What have we discovered about ourselves? What were our shortcomings and our limitations? And how have we transcended those things? And how then we have exceeded? How have we treated one another? And so on and so forth. 
But you know, for all of this and more, do we ever stop to consider the kind of impact our lives will have and will have for generations to come? Yet, in order to find our healing, you know, we need to grow into and be in healthier relationships in order to continue the healing from damaged emotions or wounded spirits or lack of emotional and psychological support, again, to name a few. And, you know, something interesting happens that whenever this occurs, whenever we find that healing from that which has really wounded us, we discover that we no longer wish to find peace and grace and love, but rather, if the healing is fully transformative, we're going to start to see ourselves become peace, grace, and love. And talk about that vibe we're going to be giving off. This sense of beingness generates a powerful, positive energy field or a vibrant aura. And others can tell this even before you know we speak. We no longer worry about what we're going to say in any given in any given situations. We can just simply be and allow ourselves to be fully present with ourselves and with others. Well, I'd really love to hear your heart on this matter. So again, if you would like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. And I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. Be back with you in one minute. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Dr. James Hawkins, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, before we continue in the second half of the show, I just want to say a quick word about next week's show. It's entitled Tangible Holiness, Looking Inside the Teacup. Okay, and um, now don't be misled. We're not going to, you know, read tea leaves. I, first of all, I don't know how to do that. And second of all, going to go in a different direction with looking inside the teacup. But it's often, where do we look to find God? Where does God show up? You know, and how a God often shows up in the ordinariness of our lives. And how many times do we miss God because we're looking in the wrong places? But the generations uh, that are, you know, up and coming these days, uh, they are certainly looking for tangible holiness. 
In other words, they just don't want to be told something about holiness. They want to experience it. They're looking something where, you know, God with flesh on, you know, something that they can hold in their hands, something that is real. So we've got some interesting insights by just looking inside the teacup, you know, where God often shows up in the ordinariness of our lives. So that is next week, uh, August 26th. And then we could say goodbye to August and get ready for the month of September. Well, early in the show, I was talking about the emotional and psychological self-inflicted wounds and, and where do they come from? And again, let's think about it this way, that you know, we often think, whether it be individually or as a society, that if we say something harmful or we do something harmful, that it's never going to come back on us. It's like once we, once we send it out, that's it. You know? But it does. Every negative thought, every negative thing that we say, every every negative thing that we do comes back to us, often reinforcing the wounded parts of ourselves. Okay? And, you know, the same is true in the very positive things. You know, every positive thought, every positive thing we say, every positive thing we do comes back to us, often reinforcing the holistic or the healed parts of ourselves, the healthy parts of ourselves. So it goes both ways. But you know, it's, again, this isn't the the only way of thinking about this because you know we have you know around the world many ways to understand this concept. You know, we say what goes around comes around. Uh, what you sow, you also reap, and even karma is another way to understand that. Even though you know, really, no matter how you say it. Humanity lives in an echo that what goes out from us is going to return to us, just like we hear the sound of our voices echoing back in our ears whenever we shout in a tunnel or a cave. Because everything we think and say and do is energy. And unless we transform that negative energy through healing our own wounds, it's going to come back to us exactly how it went out from us. A wise man saw an angry and stubborn boy uh, who was just kind of making life difficult for his parents, just full of anger, ball of rage, just yelling, screaming, kicking, whining, crying, and so forth. And one day this wise man approached the boy and he asked him how many days he, you know, how do you, you know, how many days often do you get angry? And, you know, the boy just stopped and thought for a minute. And he said, well, I, I really can't remember. And then the wise man gave this boy a wooden board and a hammer and some nails. And he told him, you know, put a nail in the board every time you get angry. You know, and the boy promised he'd do that because after all, it seemed like fun. And so after a few days, this boy had the board full of nails. And then he came and showed it to the wise old man. And the man asked the boy then to take the board home with the hammer and to remove each nail every day that he did not get angry. And after several weeks, not days this time, but after several weeks, the boy 
gleefully showed this board to the wise man with all the nails removed. He's like, see, all the many times I didn't get angry. And the wise man said to the boy, well, you did well to have the nails removed, but what about the holes left in the board? And that's how damaging your anger can be. It's like driving a nail and we, you know, we take the nails out. But again, what damage has been done? So how do we transform negative energy? Well, it all comes back to us. It begins with healing ourselves. And to take this concept to the heart of the matter, so to speak, the way we can find healing is to begin asking ourselves, who am I, really? You know, beneath all the external facades and beneath all of the pretense and outward appearances, you know, and everything else, who are we at our core? This is a dangerous question. It's a dangerous question that many people shy away from because it compels us to go way beyond the status quo in our society. And it takes us directly into ourselves to sit and to listen to the very cry and ache of our souls. You know, people often find it in vogue these days to meditate in order to work on themselves. Wonderful. Absolutely. We need more people meditating. Okay. And while this is a very important practice, quite often people become discouraged because they uh, either are mentally bombarded with a bunch of to-do lists and they just can't get a handle on the monkey mind that's running hither and yon and all over the place, or they stop meditation altogether because they do not see the results the way they want to see the results, or perhaps the results aren't coming fast enough. Well, either way, meditation often becomes a shallow practice when it's not integrated into our lives that create this transformation of who we truly are. See, I think most people start off with meditation in order to quiet the mind, in order to quiet the heart, in order to just find that peace. All good things. But really, meditation is meant for us to get in touch with ourselves, a soul. When you think about it this way, you know, everything we say or do, etc., comes from a place of, you know, what we could say, mindfulness and awakening into who we truly are. And this awakening takes us way beyond merely identifying as just solely a, a body and a mind. Instead, it, it transforms and transcends us into a reality that we see ourselves connected to all things. In other words, again, what we send out is going to come back to us. You know, in the Hindi language, there the greeting namaste or namaskar uh, literally means the light within me recognizes the light within you. Or perhaps if we flip it around a bit in the English language, namaste means I see the light in you because I first see the light in myself. 
I see the light in you because I first see the light in myself. And there is a tremendous potential for all, all beings to recognize and embrace the light within themselves as well as one another. And engaging in this kind of integrated meditation compels us to sooner or later stop asking to receive things in meditation, but instead we ask to have forgiveness or unforgiveness, bitterness, and other negative attitudes to be removed. You know, this is so that what is lying dormant in us can be unencumbered to come up and come out in life-giving ways. People often understand this as, you know, the story of a unicorn, or not a uh, story of an acorn. Ah, I don't know what I'm thinking of unicorns. I must be a Freudian slip out there. <laughs> but no, it's the story of the acorn. And, um, you know, put an acorn in the ground, and eventually it's going to grow into this huge oak tree. Okay? But, you know, it it's a long, long process. And again, to grow anything, there's going to come a time where you have to remove things that get in the way, things that are going to hinder the growth of not just an acorn, but again, any plant, you know, whether it be weeding or removing rocks or making sure there's enough water and so forth and tending it and pruning and again, whatever the, the crop is or the plant or the flower or the, the fruit or, or something. Okay. A lot of process, a lot of work involved in that. And so the same is true with us. You know, we have to be really attentive to removing the things in our lives that simply don't belong, that simply are getting in the way, that simply pull us back, you know, into the past and say, not so fast. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you could possibly change? Or are we, from our past, continue to act out in ways that has nothing to do with the person in front of us, mind you, but it could be that we have unresolved issues with people in our lives, but we just see them standing in front of us, even though they're not. Or we hear their voice every time we hear a buzzword that reminds us of something that has happened to us. I see the light in you because first, I see the light in myself. You know, there's a, a Buddhist story out there um, regarding, you know, the, you know, at one time the Buddha did not forgive somebody. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, that, that just can't be. The Buddha was very forgiving. But no, this, this story, you know, is, you know, also true that the Buddha, you know, just one time didn't forgive a person. And it's told in a way that really focuses on real compassion, from which forgiveness ultimately flows. And so the story goes, you know, one day a restless businessman once came into Buddha's assembly, and he walks straight to him, and he spit in the Buddha's face. I mean, he was furious that his children could have spent their time earning money but they sat with the Buddha instead, with their eyes closed. And the Buddha, with this man's spit on him, just merely smiled at this man. 
There was no word, no reaction. The man waited and waited and gave up and just walked away in a huff. And he was shocked. But you know, that man couldn't sleep at all that night. For the first time in his life, he had met someone who smiled when he spat at that person. His whole world had turned upside down. Well, the next day, he went back to the Buddha, and he fell at his feet. And he said, Oh, Holy One, please forgive me. I didn't know what I did. But the Buddha said, No, I cannot excuse you. And everybody in the assembly was taken aback. You heard his collective, ah. But the Buddha said, why should I forgive you when you have done nothing wrong? Well, the businessman thought the Buddha had forgotten, you know, so he reminded him of what he did the day before. And the Buddha sim simply replied, oh, that person isn't here now. And if I ever meet that person that you spat on, I'll tell him to excuse you. <laughs> See, to this person here, you've done nothing wrong. And that's real compassion, to be able to look beyond and to live in the present moment and say, well, what happened the day before, okay, but that person isn't here. And you have a chance to be a different person as well. Well, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh was once quoted saying that uh, we live in a time of meditation when it's no longer just an individual practice. We have to practice together as a community, as a nation, as a planet. And if we really want peace to be possible, then we should try to look at the reality in such a way that there is no separation. Again, what we send out comes back to us. We are all connected. And uh, one of my teachers, uh, Joseph Rael, or Beautiful Painted Arrow, uh, in a recently published work entitled Becoming Medicine, Paths of Initiating into Living Spirituality, he writes that the way you become a medicine person is that you practice who you are because you are already medicine. Nobody gives it to you. You are already it. And what a gift to yourself and to the world when you realize you are already medicine for others, that you're already healing for others, that you have that potential in you. What's getting in the way of that? Is it bitterness? Is it unforgiveness? Is it something that you just struggle with to let go from? What a gift it would be to yourself when you realize you're already medicine. You, you, you are. I mean, we just have to then work on clearing out everything that gets in the way of that medicine in terms of, you know, unresolved emotional, psychological, physical, and spiritual woundedness. But this is a kind of medicine that needs to be lived out. This is the kind of integrative meditation that leads us to put feet on, to walk it out, to live it out every day. Because, you know, when I was in graduate school, I was first exposed to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, I'm sure you've seen it. It's the pyramid. Um, it's a model in which um, 
It's a means of understanding our human nature and striving to achieve personal goals. And uh, this model of understanding the self follows the logic that our lives go through stages of attaining personal needs. Things like food, clothing, shelter, security, intimacy with others, goals, life meaning, purpose, and so on and so forth. Okay, it's really not a bad model. It's just incomplete. And I'll explain more about that here. In, in my mind, I think it's incomplete. But for some, it's a very good model to begin because it, it just shows, you know, just what do we do or how do we live our lives out in order, you know, to receive the needs or get the needs that we feel that, um, you know, we would like to have in our lives. And uh, ultimately, at the top, there is this self-actualization. And many people today believe that once they attain this self-actualization or just full awareness, or in other words, discovering their life's purpose and motivation and meaning, then they're going to finally have found their life satisfaction that has so long it eluded them. And yet, many people are often met with a harsh reminder that in attaining you know, one's dreams and ambitions and goals, this doesn't necessarily guarantee happiness, let alone finding that inner peace. And in fact, despite their accomplishments, you know, people still sense something's missing from their lives. And if, and if this is so, why then do many people feel so empty when they have so much? I mean, what's the problem? And perhaps these feelings of disappointment with, say, Maslow's hierarchy stems from a misperception that it is a flawed model. But rather, perhaps we need to understand that this model is limited because self-actualization carries us only so far. Because attaining true happiness and joy and peace in our lives comes not in the accumulation of things or degrees or even accomplishments, but rather, these things come from the grace of God's presence that can only touch our soul. See, indeed, there is a greater depth of contentment, forgiveness, love, joy, peace, and so forth that awakens in us when we fully realize ourselves as souls. And it is through God's grace that we are able to recognize our soul's connection to God and throw off this cloak of illusion. And But still, the limitation of Maslow's model here doesn't mean that self-actualization is a worthless pursuit. Because on the contrary, we all need to have our basic physical needs met. And we all need to have a sense of personal security and meaningful relationships and attainable goals. And yet, we must also understand that these earthly pursuits are always pointing us towards a higher awakening of self-realization of who we truly are. And, you know, I've used this model several times and and just um, how we can learn lessons as we become involved in healing intergenerational trauma. And the first thing we need to do is just step outside our linear thinking of, you know, the past, present, future like that, and take a leap of faith, so to speak, and fall into God's grace a grace that opens us up to this expanded consciousness. Because once we realize who we are as souls, 
I'd say we are then empowered to re-engage Maslow's hierarchy from a more life-giving inspiration that focuses not on the ego-driven achievement, but rather that which enhances the value and dignity and worth of all relationships. See, for example, you know, realized souls are no longer motivated to feed others just for the sake of alleviating their own guilt and filling empty stomachs. But rather, their motivation comes from the awareness that by feeding others, they are also feeding souls with compassion and grace. That which we do in the physical, we also do in the spiritual. And instead of spending time with another out of obligation, you know, realize souls instead see another soul in need of friendship and love. I see the light in you because I first see the light in myself. And instead of forgiving others from a perspective of, well, what do I get out of it? You know, we can forgive because, well, we're just simply not allowing people to carry the crippling effects that unforgiveness and bitterness has on them and us as souls. As we bless others in the physical sense, we also bless them in a spiritual sense. And when we meet the basic needs in others, these benevolent acts inevitably nudge them closer to discover who they authentically are as soul. Never diminish even the simplest acts of kindness or compassion or grace, for these are truly the acts that touch the soul and cause all of heaven, all the universe to rejoice. Self-realization fulfills self-actualization. Well, I'm Dr. James Houck, and I appreciate you spending this hour with me. Again, if uh, for some reason you had missed other um, uh, broadcasts, I invite you to go back to the website and download them at your and listen to them at your leisure. Uh, but until next time, uh, just ask that everybody be safe, behave yourselves, and may God hold all of us in the palm of God's hands. Take care. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to ReclaimingAuthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.